It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I was drawn to having today's guest, Marcus, on the show because he talks a lot about social anxiety. That's a big focus of his work and his upcoming book. And that is something that has become important for me to address personally. I did not really understand how much I was struggling with social anxiety until probably the past year or so. And understanding that has really helped me navigate communication, in-person experiences, and anything that involves socializing, whether that's one-on-one with somebody or a large group. And Marcus, this is actually a very timely conversation because I'm going to an in-person event, which feels so rare these days. <laughs> but at least for me, I don't I haven't done a ton of socializing or especially in the business sense since the pandemic started. I've really cut back on going to live events. But there is one that's happening this coming weekend for me as of the time we're recording this, and I couldn't turn it down. But I find myself trying to almost brace myself for the social anxiety I expect to feel. A, because I'll be going and there'll be networking and I'll be just around a lot of people. But B, I'm I'm speaking and I know, Marcus, part of your journey has been overcoming the fear of public speaking. I wouldn't say that I have fear around that, but I get anxiety around public speaking, no matter how confident I am, how good I feel in the environment, I feel anxious. It's kind of like a combination of nerves and excitement. It's wondering how things are going to go. It's thinking about the past and what has gone wrong. You know, I've had some public speaking experiences that were not so pleasant. (laughs) And sometimes I get in my head about that. And I'm, I'm curious as a starting point, Marcus, is that something that you still experience even after all of this time you've spent studying social anxiety, do you still find yourself feeling that anxiety? Have you just gotten better at managing? Where are you at today as of the end of April 2022? Yeah, it's a great question. And yes, absolutely. Every single time I get up, I feel some form of anxiety. And I really believe that everybody does. Every great speaker I've ever spoken to has said, you always get a little bit of butterflies, even if you're really good. And part of it, I think, is natural. You know, we want to feel accepted. We want to do our best. So it's natural to have those feelings of anxiety. But it's how you kind of look at those feelings of anxiety that ultimately determines how successful the presentation is going to go. So I talk extensively in the book and with my clients about redirecting that energy into something constructive instead of destructive. So every time I start to feel my chest get tight and I start to have those same nervous feelings that everyone else does, I start to redirect them into a positive direction. 
And that really positively impacts my performance, you know, at trade shows, at conferences, or even just on one-on-one communication like today. I guess a, a great question is to be transparent. Were you feeling anxious before coming on this podcast? Because I actually noticed that I experience some emotion that doesn't always feel good before I connect with a guest. And I wonder if that's unrecognized social anxiety. How about you? Yeah. So I wouldn't say that I was, you know, kind of tight in the chest and and super nervous to come on the show because I get to do this fairly frequently. But there's always that little bit of nervousness and there's that little bit of excitement. And sometimes our bodies doesn't always know the difference. So you get all those endorphins and you're excited about something, but then you're also like, am I also afraid? Is this also fear? So it's again, being able to recognize, hey, you know, this is just my body's natural response to an event. I can kind of decide how I want to react to it, whether that's, you know, I'm going to get really, really nervous and kind of spiral, or I'm going to say, no, this is excitement. I'm getting really excited for this, you know, conversation that I get to have. So yeah, even today, there's that little bit of like, oh, how's it going to go? Like, are they going to like me? Are the listeners going to like me? And it all comes back to that, you know, wanting to feel accepted, wanting to do a good job, but redirecting that energy somewhere positive. I love that you're touching upon how much we want to feel accepted, right? Because I think that's a huge part of this. I know with the podcast, it certainly is. And when I'm public speaking, I feel a lot of that desire. I mean, when I'm crafting my presentations as I am this week, prepping for my my talk next week, I am thinking about like, how can I make the audience feel good? How can I give them some good value? But also, is this going to be good for the event organizers, you know, and I guess you could get in your head a lot and, and feel a lot of pressure. And sometimes that pressure makes it hard to perform, you know, and I think it is that skill of moving through any of this fear and doing it anyways. And I, it actually kind of ties into the title of your book, which is Don't Shut Up. <laughs> I'm kind of curious where that phrase came from or what that means for you, Marcus. Do you find that people think that they need to shut up? Is that what's behind that? Yeah. So the title of the book kind of came from that idea that there's this little voice in our head that says, it's easier to just shut up, sit down and be quiet. And I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling, not saying that other people are are telling you to shut up, but it's that idea that you're telling yourself to shut up. Whether you know it or not, you have that little voice in your head or those anxiety that kind of creeps in and says, hey, it's probably easier to just not say anything. And the whole point of the book is that by doing that, you are actually limiting the experiences that you get to have and you kind of create a detriment to yourself and where you can go as a person. We always try to shield ourselves from you know, injury or illness. And in doing so, we start to eliminate things from our lives that could cause you know, emotional injuries. And we say, hey, we'll just not do that. We'll not go to that event. We'll not give that presentation. I won't talk to that person because we think that it's going to hurt us in some way. But by doing so, you you might actually be hurting yourself more. So the title really came from telling yourself not to shut up. <laughs> 
I love that. I, I mean, obviously, it's very eye-catching. You know, what does this mean is my initial thought when I saw the title of your book, because it's got that shock value. And it also taps into something that's, I don't know if it's quite universal, but there's that old idea that public speaking is like the biggest fear people have. You know, I'm not even sure if that's that's actually true. <laughs> I forget what the statistics were, but I remember growing up and being in college earlier on in my career, hearing that a lot and being fascinated by that because I actually found public speaking to became very exhilarating over time. I think the times that I didn't like public speaking was when I associated it with something that I had to do. Like I was being forced into it. I had to talk about something I wasn't really passionate about. For example, when I had to give presentations in school, you know, I was like, ugh, you know, this is something that I have to do in order to pass this class or I just don't have an option because of the way the education is set up, right? And that I just felt awful about. I remember being in school, especially on in high school and feeling so awkward. And, and then you would just sit there watching other people give presentations and I would feel so anxious and be in my head the whole time. And then that actually gave me a lot of perspective because I'm like, wow, all these other people who are watching me are probably not even paying attention because they're feeling anxious too more than likely. But once I transitioned into presenting on things that I felt confident about that I really enjoyed, it shifted the whole experience. I'm curious, did you find that to be true too, given your history with social anxiety and also with your research? Do you find that what we're presenting on in the context and choice really plays a big role in whether you enjoy something or not? Absolutely. And there's actually a very strange psychological phenomenon that I've observed. And I'd love someday to do kind of a bigger study on it because it really is only something that I've observed in my clients and, and throughout my life. And it's these rare bursts of confidence surrounding topics you're passionate about. We probably have all been in a situation where you're a bit nervous at a party or a social event or a work event and everyone's talking and you're kind of sitting back quiet and then all of a sudden they mention something that you're passionate about. They mention that new movie that you just saw and you loved it. And all of a sudden you interject and before you know it, you're already in the conversation talking like you're the best speaker in the world and you didn't even know it. And those you know, kind of rare bursts of confidence surrounding passionate topics, I tell people lean into it. I talk about it extensively in the book and my training about when you have those moments, lean into them and also try to initiate them. A conversation is kind of a back and forth where you exchange passionate points. So as you kind of transition between points, make sure you're talking about things you're passionate about. So that when it's your time to talk, you've got that confidence kind of coming up from those passionate points to push you forward. But it also means that you may have to present on things that you're not so passionate about. And how I got over that, because I have to present on a lot of things that I'm not super passionate about sometimes. But the way you get over that is you start to understand that those allow you to practice. Because you wouldn't wait until the day before a huge game to practice your first free throw. You would be practicing continuously before that. So why do we wait until that huge speech where everything's on the line to practice? 
No, you would rather have a hundred speeches under your belt that you maybe weren't so passionate about. So you had practice. So that's how I got over that. You know, I've given thousands and thousands of speeches now and worked at dozens and dozens of different conferences throughout my life. And not every single one gave me that exhilarating feeling. But knowing that each one allowed me to practice and get better. So when I did have that kind of pinnacle moment where I had a really passionate speech to give, like when I officiated my sister's wedding, it was all of those small things that allowed me to be so great that day. And without those, I wouldn't be the person I am. So you start out on passionate points, but you soon realize that by giving speeches and talking about things you may not be passionate about, you're still practicing and you're still getting better. That gives a little bit more context to why I had to do so many presentations in in high school and college. They're probably encouraging exactly what you're describing. But of course, when you're younger, you don't have the perspective. And you're absolutely right. It's, It's interesting because I really look forward to opportunities to speak. But given what you're sharing, I I think it's really helpful to reframe it and look for all sorts of different opportunities to practice it. I mean, even a podcast is an ongoing practice. I've, I've done hundreds of podcast episodes, and I feel like it's a constant refinement. And you could attribute it to the same thing where There are times where you have a big guest on the show and you really don't want that to be the first person you've ever talked to, right? You want to have lots of experience recording up until then so that you can feel like you're fully prepared and and thriving in that scenario. And I suppose you could apply that advice to a lot of things. I'm curious if it also applies to just conversation. So going back to other elements of social anxiety that people feel, it's not always going to be about getting up on stage. It could just be going to an event, going to a party. And so for me, with my upcoming conference, I would love to hear some of your tips, Marcus, on what helps you work through your social anxiety. Do you do prep work? Do you have tools for yourself? How have you set yourself up for success so that social anxiety doesn't overtake you at an event like a business conference? Yeah, the number one way that I got over it was, again, through practice. I've attended countless trade shows in my life and done you know tons and tons of interviews just like this one. And each time you do it, it gets a little bit easier. So being able to go out and practice those interactions, even if it's just with the you know person working the counter at the grocery store, each one of those times you do it, your brain goes, hey, that wasn't that bad. Maybe we don't need to be so nervous next time. And every single time it chips away just a little bit more. The nervousness never really goes away, but you understand that your reaction may not be completely justified. So when you do have a more you know, strong stress response to a situation, you have that experience to say, hey, we probably don't need to be this nervous. We can begin to calm ourselves down and redirect that energy in a more positive direction. And a lot of that comes down to, do you have a plan in place? How are you going to open a conversation? How are you going to give that presentation? How are you going to talk to that person you really need to? Having a plan is going to make it a lot easier to start than if you just kind of wing it. So I tell people all the time, especially when you're public speaking, if you have a speech, 
you should have a plan. You should know what you want to talk about, the order in which you want to talk about it. You don't want to write every single word because then you can start to sound a bit pre-programmed, but you want to understand what you're going to say and when you're going to say it so that you don't have to worry about it when you're up there. The same goes for normal conversations. If you walk up to someone and you have no idea what you're going to say, it's going to be a little bit nerve-wracking. But if you use my process to come up with a new, exciting, empathic statement to open the conversation and you follow the steps, soon enough, the conversation's off and rolling and then it's easy. Then you just kind of rinse and repeat from there. What's an example of an opener for a conversation? Yeah, so... I don't like to give kind of like one-off openers because I think they remind me a little bit of like pickup lines, which I absolutely hate. (laughs) I think they're so cringy. But I talk extensively about this idea of empathic statements. And I think it's the perfect way to open any conversation. Empathic obviously comes from the root word empathy, which means to share the feelings of someone else, which is exactly what you want to do when you start a conversation. You want someone to understand that you know how they're feeling, you know something about them, because then you have a connection right off the bat. So an empathic statement is usually going to be declarative in nature, and it's going to be about the other person. So an example, simple example would be, hey, that's a cool Nirvana t-shirt. It seems really kind of small and stupid, but it's something that they can relate to. They're obviously wearing that shirt for a reason, whether they like the band or they like the laid back style. It shows you something about them then they can relate to you. You made a comment on it. They say, hey, they also like this shirt. I like this shirt. We've got a common connection. Then they're obviously going to respond with something. You need to listen to that response and you need to come up with an insightful question to keep the conversation going. And it's really kind of that easy. Those couple of steps, once you ask that question, use the momentum. Then it becomes a lot less formulaic. You can have the conversation go in a million different directions. But to open, I find that that an empathic statement about the other person really is going to create that connection right off the bat. I love that. And I absolutely agree because you can see someone light up when you point something out like that and you're acknowledging them. So many of us just want to feel seen. So by noticing something about what they're wearing, which is probably done with intention, I know for me, I really think about like what outfits I'm going to wear. I'm not even that into fashion, but every outfit I'm putting on has some sort of purpose behind it, especially if I'm going to a party or an event. So that intention is so helpful and, and people like to feel validated. And I actually don't receive that many types of conversation starters. And it's interesting because you're pointing this out and I'm thinking, wow, it feels like so many people, whether it's at a personal event, something casual versus a business event, it feels like a lot of people are just waiting for you to see them. But to take your advice, Marcus, and if everybody kind of initiated more connection with one another, it would feel much more connected versus you know, those conversations you go into and that person just doesn't stop talking about themselves. An example immediately comes to mind. I went to a party in Hollywood and the problem with LA is (laughs) there are a lot of people that are in their ego here. And I guess that could be true about many parts of the world, but I think 
in the entertainment business, there's a lot of networking. Yeah, everyone wants to smooth with each other, uh, smooch. How do you even pronounce that correctly? Well, they want to network, right? They want to connect with each other. And I went at the end of this party, I was introduced to this guy and he just went on and on. I felt like he he was treating the conversation like it was a job interview. He literally listed off his entire work history. And at first it was actually quite interesting because I, I was, you know, what he was talking about was fascinating. And some of the work that he's done was really interesting to me. But he didn't pause to ask much about who I was until the very end of the conversation. And then he completely dismissed it. I, I shared like one line about the work that I do. And you could tell he could have cared less because also I could tell that he was asking about me only to find out if I could help him. Right. And that was a major experience in Los Angeles. Again, I'm sure this happens all over the place. And if that conversation had shifted where he made it about me and then I made it about him and we were kind of like passing the ball back and forth, it would have turned out very differently. We probably would have continued the conversation outside of the party. You know, it would have actually been more beneficial than him almost giving me a, a presentation about who he was. So I'm curious, Marcus, as a follow-up, what do you do in those type of situations? Do you have methods of turning it around or do you simply just walk away from those type of conversations? What do you do when somebody is dominating the conversation and doesn't actually show much interest in you? Yeah. So it all comes down to what you want out of the conversation. And, you know, there's a lot of different outcomes that can occur and it depends on the situation. Is this trying to meet a friend? Is this trying to make a business connection? Are you trying to sell something? What is the desired outcome? Once you know what that outcome is, you can decide how to proceed in the conversation. If I was trying to make a friend and our first interaction was them blabbering on for 30 minutes without asking me a single question, I'd probably walk away. You know, just because you're confident and you are, you know, overcoming your anxiety doesn't mean you have to continue talking to people if you don't want to. You can stop talking at any time. But if you have to, let's say this is a business connection and you have to make sure that relationship is good, you can just let them keep talking. And, you know, by letting them continue to talk, it's obviously that's their main MO for the conversation. By letting them do that, they're just going to keep having better and more positive feelings toward you. So, you know, I would just keep throwing them softball questions about themselves. So it all, it all depends on what you want out of the conversation. Now, if this was a friend who I already had, you know, kind of in my friend group and they were just kind of talking my ear off, maybe I'd interrupt and be like, hey, you know, this conversation feels a little bit one-sided right now. You know, it's okay to call your friends out. I think everyone can use that every once in a while. But it's based on your situation and your relationship with your friends. You think they'll respond positively to it? Do you think it's it's worth interrupting? It all depends. I have some friends that I would do it for, and I have some others that I wouldn't. That's very relatable. I'm curious how what other ways social anxiety shows up for people. So we certainly have nervousness about not knowing what to say and how to handle these type of conversations. Another one would be 
your appearance, right? Like showing up and wondering, do you look good or being concerned that you don't look good and somebody's going to judge you for however many factors there are about physical appearance. If you want to touch upon that, I'd love to hear about that, Marcus, or some other ways that it manifests, like what causes somebody to feel anxious in these social situations? Yeah, I think at its core, social anxiety can be boiled down into two areas. Number one is social acceptance, which is a a feeling that everyone can relate to. And the other is inconfidence in your own knowledge, otherwise known as test anxiety. We think about it when taking a test, but you don't think about it when you're in a social situation. You know, the knowledge you possess doesn't change, but your confidence in it does. So you start to second guess yourself and you don't want to get it wrong. So you just end up getting super anxious and not answering. So I really think those are the two root causes. You are either anxious because you want to feel accepted or you're anxious because you think you might get something wrong. And those two kind of have two different ways of manifesting. A lot of the test anxiety in the social world comes from public speaking because there's no downtime. There's no back and forth. You don't have time to regain your place. You don't have time to think new witty responses. It's all on the fly. In social conversations where there's a back and forth, that's more of the acceptance. I need to feel accepted. I'm worried that they might not like me. And that's where that anxiety comes from. And then obviously, it all intermingles. There's a whole bunch of gray area in between where both are at play. When you're on stage, when I'm on stage, not only am I afraid that I might say something wrong, I'm also afraid that people might not like me. So you get kind of both coming and going in different social interactions to some degree or another. Speaking of being afraid of people not liking you, what do you do, Marcus, when you find out that somebody doesn't like you? Like when you experience some sort of rejection, you know, there's many different ways that that could show up. But how do you personally manage that within yourself? Do you have any like mental tactics for overcoming the bad feelings that rejection could show up as within yourself? Absolutely. So the number one is to just understand that not everyone's going to like you. We are all unique individuals. There's, you know, 7 billion of us, more than more than that now. And not every single one's going to like you. So it's okay. You have a specific personality and it's going to be you know, attractive to certain individuals and unattractive to certain individuals. But then beyond that, you can also start to look at what you might have done. So obviously don't internalize and be like, oh man, they hate me and I'm just racked with guilt now. But it's okay to kind of go back and critique yourself because there's a huge list of things that most people do consciously or unconsciously that make them less likable and they don't even know it. I have that list in the book. I'm not going to go through all of them because that would take a whole lot of time. But, you know, things like gossiping, things like humble bragging, these are traits that you can do that make you less likable. So if you can go back and review the interaction in your head and say, ooh, did I humble brag there? I think I did. I think I did. I shouldn't have done that. Maybe that's why. And then you can correct it later, you know? Just because someone doesn't like you right now doesn't mean they're not going to like you later. You know, everyone has a bad day. Not every interaction can go, you know, smoothly. So if you can review and say, hey, 
these are the things that I did that I think I can work on and I can remove them from my actions, then I can do better next time. And I think we can all, you know, remove some of these, these traits from our lives. That actually ties into another question I had about, for lack of a better term on my end, is post-social anxiety. For those of us who go to an event, personal or professional, come home and, and start thinking, oh my gosh, did I say the wrong thing? And maybe we don't know. Like the difference between having information that we actually did say or do something embarrassing or something unlikable versus sometimes it's just a fear, but it's not actually a reality. And that in itself can cause a loop of anxiety, right? Because I've experienced that. And so I might actually start to anticipate that bad feeling and associate that with events. So I might avoid going to an event, avoid public speaking because I had a bad experience. And last time I spent the entire next day in bed feeling bad about myself and that you can get caught in that loop. So do you have tips for handling that? And is that something that you've ever experienced personally? All the time. I am my own worst critic. And it's taken me a long time to understand that those things are not healthy and that there's a big difference between a positive mental critique and a negative mental critique. A negative mental critique will cause you to spiral and you'll just start to nitpick every single action that you did. And usually at the root of a negative mental critique is kind of vague statements. There's nothing backing them up. You just say, oh, I should have said that better. When really there's no scientific data to prove that you said it wrong. You know, you just are kind of going down this rabbit hole. A positive mental critique is saying, hey, I did a good job, but here are the things that I think I could work on. And not hounding yourself to say, you did a terrible job, you're bad at this. It's saying, oh, here are some things I could get better. Because I think everybody, whenever they do something, there are items that they could do slightly better. And it's all about how you look at that. Are you punishing yourself or just making yourself better? Yes. And that actually leads me to another question. (laughs) What if you felt really good about something you did socially, whether it's a conversation or a presentation, a talk, public speaking? And what if you got negative feedback from that that doesn't line up with how you felt? There's that conflict of, wow, I, I really feel like I nailed this. I put a lot of work into this. I don't think I could have changed anything, but yet I received some negative feedback. Is it still worth incorporating that feedback into your work in the future? Or do you think, Marcus, that you should actually ignore some negative feedback like it doesn't pertain to you? Yeah, I think there's absolutely scenarios where ignoring feedback is a good thing. I personally get feedback almost every single week. I speak at a lot of different conferences, a lot of presentations, and there's a lot of stakeholders in those presentations. And they have feedback. But you have to kind of understand which is constructive feedback and which is destructive feedback. Constructive feedback is going to be things where they're like, hey, you did a really great job on X, Y, and Z, but I think next time you could work on you know, A, B, and C. Destructive feedback is 
hey, I didn't like your tone. I didn't like your word choice here. I didn't like this. You can start to tell which is coming from a place of kind of comfort and which is coming from a place of anger. And understanding where that feedback is coming from will allow you to kind of parse through it and see which is worth incorporating into your own speaking habits and which is just nitpicky, which a lot of people, you know, everyone has their own style. If they're critiquing your style, ignore it completely. You are your own unique person. You don't need to listen to them. If I did, I would be speaking much differently because you only get one voice, so speak the way that you want to. But if you say, oh, that's actually not a bad point, then it's probably good feedback. That's really helpful and really interesting. And sometimes it's very nuanced, you know, even even when you share that advice, I still find myself getting stuck. I think I've been someone who has a lot of people pleasing habits. And that actually makes the social situations hard for me and my anxiety to go up because I feel like I'm constantly trying to figure out what's going to please other people. And I'm trying to work on finding that balance between what makes me feel really good and confident versus that constant survival mode of, am I pleasing this person? If not, oh my gosh, like I got to change. I got to change. And it keeps me in this loop of never finding that feeling like balanced and secure within myself. And that's rough place to be. So what would you say to someone like me who has a history of too much people pleasing? Yeah. And that's a great point because I've suffered from that. A lot of people I helped have suffered with that. And it almost manifests in too much talking. When you're a people pleaser and you see that someone's uncomfortable, you almost have to fill the dead space and try to hit on a subject that's going to get them engaged and make them more excited. But by doing so, you're draining your own energy and you're being less effective in the conversation. So in those situations where you feel like you have to please somebody, take a step back and think, okay, do I really have to please this person? If no, then you can start to relax. If yes, if it really is you know, a super important interaction, you can start to slow down. When you slow down conversations, it's going to allow you to have more time to think, come up with better responses, relax your stress response, and actually engage them better in the conversation. You've probably felt it before. When you're a people pleaser and it's difficult to get somebody re-engaged, the conversation almost feels like it's speeding up. And your speedometer is all the way to the right. And now you can't think. You don't know where to go next. You're kind of stringing things together haphazardly, which, again, you don't have a plan now. And your anxiety is going to continue to build. So taking that step back, taking a deep breath, understanding that pausing and not talking for a second is totally fine for a conversation, then regain your place and kind of go from there, re-engage with them, and ask some insightful questions. See why. Maybe they're just having a bad day. Maybe it's not you. Maybe there's other external circumstances. We get so wrapped up in our own internal monologue that we forget other people exist outside of this interaction as well. So being able to go, okay, they're just having a bad day. Happens to everybody. It's not me. I don't need to please them. We can just have a casual conversation. Yes. That's so helpful because it can feel so intense at times and it feels like there's so much at stake. 
But a lot of times just like slowing down and really tuning into what's going on and not blowing it out of proportion can be helpful and not not treating every person the same. And I think that it's easy to get into those patterns where we're not connected to what's happening in this specific situation and letting go of what has gone wrong in the past or trying to please everyone. And I think that is a big challenge is we just get in that mode. And I don't know if it's like a coping mechanism for survival. It's like, well, I'm used to trying to please everyone. So I'm just going to keep going with it. And that feels comfortable to me, right? So we often feel so comfortable in the uncomfortable that we don't even know how to get out of it. (laughs) And that's something that I try to examine. And To your point too, I actually think this upcoming event that I'm going to, there's not just an opportunity to practice my public speaking. There's an opportunity to practice throughout the entire event and every interaction I can look at almost as a practice in itself. And when I treat it that way, it's almost kind of relieving some of the anxiety because it's like, all right, like there's no pressure to get this right because I'll have another opportunity to practice after this. Absolutely. And as you practice, you can start to use those hits and misses in a conversation to show your brain, hey, they didn't really notice that mistake that I made, or I thought I made. But when I got that hit, that thing in the conversation that really got them engaged, then all of a sudden, they're really, you know, invested in the conversation. I use that quite frequently in my kind of casual conversations, when I feel that anxiety kind of creeping in. And it was a technique I developed when I was a casino party host, which is where I gained a lot of kind of interpersonal communication skills. I had to hop from table to table, you know, every single night, creating new conversations with hundreds, maybe thousands of people every single night. And I coined my own kind of psychological phenomenon, the hits and misses effect. A hit is a piece of information that the other person can relate to, and a miss is something that they can't, or a mistake. And what I noticed was when I threw out a a mistake, nobody even noticed. They didn't acknowledge it, but when I got a hit, they would turn, they'd face me, they'd be engaged in the conversation, and that helped tell my brain, these guys are so you know wrapped up in their own kind of internal monologue, they didn't even notice that you made a mistake. So you really shouldn't be this nervous anymore. That's really fascinating. There's something about (laughs) a casino that is so intriguing. How did you end up at that job? Yeah, so that was kind of part of my first journey to becoming a professional speaker. I was right out of high school and I was doing some DJ work. I was an electronic music producer, just creating songs and stuff in my free time and While I was doing that, I was also working at a copy and print store to make some extra money. And one day, this guy came in in a black leather jacket, slick black hair, and he was making copies of a bingo card. And I was like, what is this guy doing with his bingo card? So I started talking to him, and he was also a DJ, and he ran an event company and said, hey, if you want to try out, swing by our office. So I came by, met with the guys, tried out, and they brought me on as one of their DJs. Eventually, that led into becoming an MC. Soon enough, I rose through the ranks and became one of their most booked MCs in the area and eventually became a casino party host, along with many other odd you know, speaking engagements that I would do. 
And that allowed me to learn so much about interpersonal communication, public speaking, how to create conversation starters, and really understood that a lot of the fears that I had were completely unfounded. Wow. That's so intriguing. And what a cool skill set to have. And it also goes to show that a lot of these skills can be learned and you can train yourself to do these things. I mean, I struggle with anxiety, but a lot of people would never know it because I've built skills and I've found ways to sometimes just cover up and mask it. But other times it's it's um, just something that I'm practicing and other people don't even realize that I generally identify as an introvert. I'm curious about how you feel about introversion versus extroversion, Marcus, because I think some people are really into that and some people don't fully believe in that. Do you, what do you think about these different types of personalities and can they be changed? Yeah. So I'm in the camp that I think categorizing anybody is destructive. When you put people into rigid groups, it creates toxic identity traits on both sides. Most people, when I say that, are like, oh, yeah, introverts, they just identify as that and they never talk. And I'm like, well, yeah, but extroverts also have the opposite. Now you have to be on all the time and it's exhausting. We think about people like Robin Williams, who was the pinnacle of an extrovert, but he was tortured on the inside because he felt like he never could be himself. He was always on. And we don't think about how both labels can create toxic behavior because you start to identify as that individual when really we are all somewhere along a spectrum. Myself, I would technically also be considered an introvert. I love downtime. When I'm not speaking after a social engagement, I'm exhausted. I need to go and I need to recharge. But I also have bouts of extreme extroversion where I'm very sociable and I love having conversations. So I don't think labeling yourself or labeling other people is helpful. So when people talk about introversion and extroversion, I say, it's fine if you think you lean one way or the other. But if it starts to define who you are and limits what you can do, then it becomes kind of an issue. I tell most people, don't worry about it. You're not introverted. You're not extroverted. You're somewhere in between. And that's totally cool. <laughs> I really, I like that. You know, there's a lot of talk about being on the spectrum. It's usually associated with something like autism. But the more that I've learned about neurodivergence and talked about with other people, I realize, wow, like I think for the most part, we're all on the spectrum. But it's, it's just a matter of what you're referring to. And it gives that fluidity, as you're mentioning here, versus we have this tendency to want to label and categorize ourselves and other people because maybe there's comfort in it. Maybe if we can identify as something that gives more context. So I see the desire for that. I certainly enjoy using things. I mean, when I talk about being an introvert, which I'm leaning towards not using quite as much as I used to, I think it actually opens up an opportunity to chat with people because generally people will say, oh, I would have never known that you're an introvert. I would never known that you have anxiety. And then I can share kind of more of who I am. But I absolutely agree that I don't want to put myself in a box because A, I don't want other people to put me in that box. 
But B, I don't want to limit myself because of some rigid definition that might even be outdated. We are constantly learning about ourselves. And then as a society, more information comes out about how our brains work and the psychology of it. And I think going beyond limitations is a really key part of your message, Marcus. And I really enjoy that because it's about that evolution that we're all on and not being attached to having to do things one way our whole lives and thinking that we're never going to change. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, the older I get, the more I learn about how our brains work. I agree with you. I think everything is on a spectrum. I don't think anybody is 100% one thing and 0% another. We're all somewhere in between. And having that flexibility allows you to take kind of opportunities that you may not have if you had a strong identity in one way or the other. Whether that's speaking or maybe just how you dress. Maybe you want to wear a skirt one day, but you're, you know, labeled as a guy. Would that stop you? Maybe if you identify that way. So being able to have that fluidity to be who you want to be without the fear of of breaking your labels is a really strong factor in having true confidence because now you're really confident in yourself. It's not faked. It's this real confidence. Mm. Yes. That to me feels so good. (laughs) It's like permission to shift and giving permission for other people to shift. And it excites me that that is being discussed more and embraced more. And I think that the rigid side of things is generally where my anxiety comes from, actually. When I feel like somebody is okay with me expressing myself, however it shows up on a day-to-day basis... I feel more comfortable around them. I lean into that. When I go into a situation socially where I feel like somebody's expecting me to be a certain way and I'm going to have to change myself because maybe I don't feel that way today, that brings up a lot of anxious feelings and fear. And that acceptance, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, how key that is. And I think acceptance and fluidity go hand in hand from my point of view, is just knowing that people are constantly shifting and that's okay. And it just lights me up to think about it that way. And I'm very drawn to those types of people. And I'm kind of interested when you're observing other people, Marcus, from all of the work that you've done, you must see all different types of personalities, like people that don't seem accepting at all. Do you think that's just coming from a place of not feeling accepted themselves? So they've just like learned to not accept other people. Where do you think that comes from? And can those people change? And so how do they change? Absolutely. I think everybody has the capability to grow and become a better version of themselves. And you're totally right. I have a very unique opportunity in my line of work where I get to talk to people on every single side of every single issue. And once you get past the initial guttural reaction of it, you understand that everyone wants the same thing. We all just want to be happy. We all want to get the best outcome for ourselves. And we all have a set of beliefs that we hold to be true. And when you start to understand that about other people, it becomes a lot easier to have those difficult conversations. And a lot of times, it comes from a place of being labeled. Are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Are you a guy? Are you a girl? Are you this? Are you that? 
And then you're in that label and you have to uphold the values of that label. But when you start to kind of pull away the artifice, then you can have a real conversation. And a lot of times deep down, those people are not as bad as we'd like to paint them to be. But rarely do you get to have those conversations. So I think if we all start to get better at understanding that everyone's not going to agree with you on everything, but if you can start to have better conversations and not just go, well, we disagree, I'm out, then you can actually start to find a middle ground that might be more acceptable. And I think that's a big problem we're feeling right now on both sides of any issue is that there's no middle ground. It's my way or the highway. When I think that there's a way everyone could get the things that they're looking for. So a lot of times it's those labels. It's that unwillingness to have conversations with people who have opposing views. And when you do, you quickly find out that you're not as different as you thought you were. And that really ties into the title of your book, Don't Shut Up. It's like, you know, we might want other people to shut up, which is kind of a form of censorship, right? Certainly there are nuances to that and boundaries to be set at times, but there are other times where people tell us to shut up or directly or indirectly. There are times where we feel like we have to shut up because we're trying to avoid conflict or we don't know how to find that middle ground or we don't want to find that middle ground. So we do end up shutting ourselves down when actually I'm starting to believe that it's important for us to continue having that dialogue. That's where we grow. That's where we learn. That's where we connect with people. If we shut down too much, we are severing that connection with one another. So I love the theme of your book, inspiring confidence for people to not just learn to be better speakers, but really learn to be better conversationalists, even when it's a really tough conversation. I think those are the times where it's the most important. The most difficult conversations are usually the most important. At least that's what I've found. Anytime that I'm really, really nervous, it's probably a pretty important conversation. I couldn't agree more. One last thing that I want to touch upon that has nothing to do with what we've talked about today, but I'm really curious about Marcus, is I saw that you have a history of doing haunted houses. So I had to bring it up. (laughs) I want to know what's the story behind haunted houses for you and what have you done exactly? (laughs) Yes. So that was actually my first love. I started doing haunted houses when I was 13 years old in my parents' garage in Oregon, Wisconsin. And we eventually outgrew the tiny confines of our garage because we were shutting down streets. We had, you know, cops there just to do crowd control. So they eventually said, you can't do it here anymore. You got to go professional or you got to stop. So then I started a professional career designing, building and operating haunted houses I've had the opportunity to do them all over the place. Most recently, I did a charity haunted house in Chicago for the after-school teen program. And I still have a passion for haunted houses and, and horror in general. I try to act at at least one haunted house every year just to get my little fix in. And it's surprising how many parallels there are between haunted houses and public speaking and being more confident. And there's a lot of really great stories in the book about haunted houses and and how it relates back to becoming a more confident speaker. So I won't spoil those because I think they're really good. Some of them are pretty funny. But yeah, it's, it's something you wouldn't think about having, you know, parallels between haunted houses and becoming a better speaker. 
Well, certainly I would not. I think that's so cool. It's such a fun fact about you and really fascinating. I mean, I'm someone who I enjoy the idea of haunted houses, like hearing you describe it. I'm like, that is so cool. (laughs) Because when I was growing up, I was really intrigued by the experience of it, you know, I, but I didn't really like the horror of it. That's not something I'm very drawn to. I kind of like scary movies, but they have to be certain types. I don't like the unexpected side of a haunted house. That makes me nervous. I just like, it feels unsafe to me, I think. Like, even though I can trust that a haunted house is safe, you know, there's actors there, but it's just like someone jumping out. That adrenaline rush does not appeal to me. But is it for you, Marcus, that you like going to haunted houses or do you like creating the experiences for, for people or both? Like, how did that evolve? And where did you even identify that within yourself? It's definitely both. I love going to haunted houses almost as much as I love putting them on. The weird thing is I've been doing it so long, I don't really get scared anymore. It's very difficult to scare me, which has also become kind of a challenge with my actors at different haunted houses to try and who's going to get him this year. But I love both. You know, when I do have a really good scare every once in a while, I love that feeling, you know, and it really does kind of come back to that, how you interpret it. You know, it's like roller coasters. You are excited and you have that adrenaline rush because you are afraid. Just like you have that adrenaline rush when you're about to speak. You can either let it excite you or you can let it terrify you. But yeah, I still love everything horror (laughs) today and uh, try to go to as many haunted houses as I can. That's so cool. And it's interesting because I'm thinking through this. I'm like, well, I enjoy roller coasters. I've actually gone skydiving and I don't remember being that afraid. I think it's because I know what's in front of me. You know, when you're on the roller coaster, you can look at the track and like, okay, this is the height that we're going to. And when we get to the top, we're going to go down. I think what I don't enjoy about the haunted houses is like, they're usually designed to be around the unexpected. You don't know what's around the next corner. You don't know who's going to come out and when that makes me deeply uncomfortable And it's kind of interesting to think about that in relation to public speaking, because unlike a roller coaster, when you speak, sure, you know, some details about what it's going to be like, but there's a ton of unknowns. You don't know exactly how many people are going to sit in the audience unless the event organizer tells you. But even then, like people might not show up. You don't know what questions you might get. You don't know if something will go wrong with the technology. I mean, so many things could happen. And same thing with conversations. Sure, you could walk into a room and have expectations for where it's going to go. But most of the time at an event or a party, a lot of things could shift around. And it's you're leaving me with some food for thought here, Marcus, about like where my comfort lies, where my anxiety is. And I think learning to embrace the unexpected is a good lesson for me and other people. And it sounds like for you, you have a natural ability to handle unexpected things. And that's a pretty, a pretty neat personality trait to have. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. They love to say that I do well on the fly. (laughs) But what I found, you know, just like in haunted houses, you have the most fun when you let go. 
when you don't have any expectations, you let go and you just do it. Those are the times you have the most fun in haunted houses. Those are the times you have the most fun speaking when you just let go and have fun. And that takes a lot of vulnerability too, because maybe part of it is it's like the embarrassment of being scared, but maybe it's good practice. Marcus, you know, this Halloween, I might need to go do some haunted houses just to practice being vulnerable and experiencing fear and knowing that it's okay. It kind of reminds me, it's very different, but there's a new trend or growing trend, not new, of people doing ice baths where they get into really cold water. And that's been around for a while. There's a Wim Hof, I believe, is who created this method. And what intrigues me about that is people enjoy going into the ice water and practicing managing their physiological response to it, where they're controlling their body and reminding them like, yes, you're in a really cold environment, but you can get out at any point. You're going to handle it. And they, they like really get into this meditative state of practicing that physical fear. And I think that's really cool. So your messaging behind practicing things is really neat and a great piece of advice to take away from this episode is how can you put yourself in situations where you can practice getting uncomfortable and working your way through that, managing your anxiety, managing your fear, managing your response so that you can grow and looking at it as an opportunity to be more confident and connected with other people. Yeah, there's that old saying, no pain, no gain. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. You know, people talk about it all the time, but we often forget that all of your growth happens when you reach a little bit farther than you think you can. And that's where the growth happens. So, you know, whether it's public speaking or, or going into an ice bath to better control, you know, your response to cold, all of it is pushing yourself a little bit farther each day. Then all of a sudden you look back and you say, wow, I've come a long way. Absolutely. That is exactly why this show is called This Might Get Uncomfortable. And it shows up in so many interesting ways. So thank you for exploring it from a different angle with me today, Marcus. Your work is so helpful and important and interesting to me. And I will link to your brand new book, Don't Shut Up, in the show notes of this episode, along with some more details about Marcus. For those of you that want to get in touch, you can go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a full transcript. There will be a video version there if you'd like to watch this back and links to everything that we referenced today. One last question for you, Marcus. Actually, two parts. One is, are haunted houses reserved for Halloween? And two, where do you feel like is the best place to experience a haunted house? Answer the first question, no. Haunted houses are not only for Halloween, though that is their largest time of year. So right now, we're at the halfway point to Halloween. So there's actually some haunted houses that are opening up in many places across the country. If you want to go check one out right now, halfway to Halloween haunted houses. Then the best place to experience haunted houses is obviously go support your local haunted houses. Many of them are locally owned and operated, and I'm a huge proponent of supporting small businesses, especially in an industry that I love. But if you want to go to the best haunted house experience in the whole world, go to Universal Halloween Horror Nights. It is incredible. 
You can go to dozens of the best haunted houses you will ever see, and you get to go to Universal. Wow, I guess I can check that off my list because I've already done that, and it's so close. I mean, that's like a 20-minute drive for me. I wasn't expecting you to mention someplace so close, so I'm running out of an excuse not to go put myself in that uncomfortable situation. (laughs) Absolutely. You should definitely go. You're so close, and John Murdy over at the, the Hollywood location does a fantastic job for Halloween Horror Nights. Okay, one final, final question. What is the best haunted house you've ever been to? Would you say Universal or if you had to pick one of all time? If I had to pick one, I'd say the cutting edge haunted house in Fort Worth, Texas. And what was it that made it so great? Well, number one, the owner is just a great guy. But number two, the haunted house is so long, so detailed, so unique, and they're not afraid to get very personal. You get wet, you get, you know, you get covered in bubbles, you are in claustrophobic spaces, you're bombarded with sound and light, and they really kind of go all out in a way that I haven't seen at many attractions. And I've been to some of the best all across the country, but I would say cutting edge haunted house in Fort Worth. Oh, man, just the thought of that makes me very uncomfortable. But, you know, I'm going to challenge myself, Marcus. I probably will be in the Fort Worth area at some point in the next year. So I'm going to keep you in mind and maybe go out of my way to to get uncomfortable. And then I'll report back to you and let you know if it was if how it went. <laughs> awesome. And you should do both sides. You should go to one and you should act in one. If you want to become oh, more confident... I- Go and act in one. That's a really interesting idea, too. I did not ever think about that. That actually sounds kind of fun. I feel like you get to unleash a side of you in that situation that wouldn't normally be socially acceptable. (laughs) But it's probably very cathartic to go act in a haunted house because you're encouraged to scare people and make them uncomfortable. Yeah. And you get to feel the true confidence inside yourself because you're kind of shielded. You're in a costume, you're in makeup, you're not you anymore. So you get to feel what it's like to be fully free, fully confident. And once you've done it, that confidence starts to bleed over into your real life. And there's you know kind of another psychological phenomenon that I talk at length about in the book as to why I think this happens. Wow. That is cool. I love this. I not, something I had not ever considered, Marcus. I'm grateful for you to bring out a new concept for me and hopefully our listener as well. Thank you so much for being here, sharing all of this again for the listener. Everything's linked and my show note editor will probably find the cutting edge links in there. So they're very good at adding in links to anything we reference to make it really easy for you. So again, for the listener, Go to wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And everything that Marcus is up to, well, maybe not everything, but most of the things that Marcus is up to will be linked in the description of that episode too. So it's very easy for you to get his book and keep in touch. Thanks again. And I'll be back with another episode in just a few days. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.